Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to this week's episode of Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Our guest is Kieran Martin, who most of you know, a long and distinguished career in the British government, including at the National Cybersecurity Center, now at the University of Oxford, working on issues uh, very close to our hearts. So Kieran, welcome. Thank you for doing this. You're, I think, the first guest we've had who's not an actual diplomat, but given all your international work, I think you qualify. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm not sure the cream of the British diplomatic service would agree, but we'll see what they think at the end of this podcast. And thank you for having me. It's great to see you both. And thank you for all your cooperation and help and friendship and challenge over the years. You know, I was cautious about the horse box and now I kind of regret it after seeing your picture there. So well, last week I had a very nice week because due to changing family circumstances, I had to drive a child to a horse competition in a horse box morning and evening. I took a bunch of work with me, but I had no Wi-Fi. So I canceled all meet all meetings that weren't essential and focused on work. And I highly recommend it if you've got that privilege, because I got so much done and it was nice. And yeah, sure, when it rains and you're stuck in a horse box with the associated aromas, it's not the best. But opposite work from anywhere, isn't that today's slogan? There you go. So what are you working on? I'm working on a bunch of articles. I've got something on ransomware coming out from The Spectator, which is a venerable old British publication yeah. associated very much with the current government, not least because the Prime Minister is a former editor. So looking forward to that. I'm working on developing some educational products for the Blavatnik School at the University of Oxford about cybersecurity executive education and embedding technology more into our educational offerings for future leaders around the world so that's really exciting because we've got like 150 students from 53 different countries and I'm working on other publications on things like offensive cyber and its consequences for uh, defense a little bit of stuff now on the operation of the new UK inward investment uh, system for national security which is becoming as controversial in its implementation as in its genesis uh, so um, there's no, there's been no shortage of interesting cybersecurity issues to get involved in. Well, maybe we can start with some of the ransomware stuff because you've been writing about that um, a fair amount of late. Um, and and you know, first of all, it seems like as soon as you left the UK government, everything just fell apart. But I would say that you know certainly we've seen a lot of ransomware, as you know, and it's become a real high profile issue. You you've been writing recently uh, on the issue of whether companies should pay or not pay, and it was interesting because I, I had pegged you. I think as someone who was tell them not to pay, and at least yeah. some of your recent articles showed you kind of moderated that view a little. So, so just you know, ransomware more generally, but also on that topic, just wanted to get your thoughts. Well, ransomware more generally, we're almost at the position now where we've gone from being not concerned enough about it to 
we ought to remember there are some other significant and serious, uh, strategically significant cybersecurity threats out there, which we might come back to, but it's gone from being borderline out of control. Uh, it's gone from being unnoticed to borderline out of control. And I remember, and Chris Krebs has spoken about this, we had a drink at a particularly soporific uh, part of uh, the Munich Cybersecurity uh, Conference. And we talked about how we would try and use our remit. This is February 2020, just before lockdowns. And we talked about our how we'd use our remaining tenure at, uh, time uh, together to try and do something about it. But we had uh, reckoned with neither um, lockdown nor the uh, unexpected way in which uh, his tenure came to an end, something he should be very proud of. So it's leapt into the public realm, which is a good thing. The way it's happened is because I think overly reckless and overly confident criminals have begun to undertake attacks which have got dangerously close to having real world, very uh, damaging um, uh, uh, impact. Um, why why is it got out of control? Well, I suppose the three reasons are the Russia safe haven, the intrinsically weak cybersecurity, and the fact that the business model works well for the criminals. And that third part, we can talk about the Russia part, I'm sure, both you and Jim will want to do that. But given you asked about the ban, I am still in favour in principle of a ban uh, to the extent that, you know, several bits of writing moderated it. One of that is a piece that I did with Tara Wheeler for Brookings, who came from the opposite perspective, where we're trying to do something genuinely interesting rather than have the adversarial sort of shout at each other. It was to reach common ground. And where I where I reached common ground with Tara, I can't speak for her, but where I think, you know, the way the joint piece worked was if you look at the totality of public policy, a ban on its own doesn't achieve very much. We started from the point of let's assume good faith in this debate amongst people on our side of the argument. No one is passionately in favour of the, the inalienable right to pay Russian criminals. Okay, So if you oppose a ban, you oppose it on practical grounds rather than ideological grounds by and large. So why do you oppose a ban? Well, you think you might drive it underground. Again, there's a sort of UK-US difference here. A lot of American friends say to me, people will just pay in private, even if it's illegal. I think in the UK, knowingly going against the laws of your own government like that, your own state, is something that most general counsels in your speak uh, would just say, no, you're not doing that. And so, you know, if you're the chief executive and you're going to illegally pay a ransom, don't tell me <laughs> you can't because I can never sanction it. I will resign. So I, you know, I sort of, I, I disagree with that. But I think there is this, this thing about support. I drew in the Northern Ireland example of during the Troubles, uh, a tactic of various terrorist groups was to bomb town centres uh, in order to drive commerce away and increase the economic costs of the political opposites that they were trying to defeat. So what happened? Insurers wouldn't insure against acts of terrorism. That's a rational step. What did the government then do, the British government? It basically became the insurer. Now, that's a drastic and radical departure, but there are things. So, you know, if you're going to require organisations not to pay, you need to do things around that. And one of the things that I came up with, that we both aligned on, which I think is really important, it's acute in the US, but it's prevalent everywhere, is that, you know, when I say let's ban ransoms, the counter argument is that's immoral because desperate people in desperate situations cannot have that option taken away from them. And you cannot, in effect, nationalize that risk. My counter to that is we are privatizing national security risk. Reading another article about a, a lonely, desperate US hospital chief executive paying a ransom. Why? Because what is the duty of a hospital CEO in the private sector in the US? Keep patient care going and nothing else, right? So it's not for them to take the collective view about what is good for the US. My view is that is the privatization of national security risk. An attack on healthcare is a national security issue. How, how the hell do we end up 
with the key decisions being in the hands of private sector executives. Now, in, in my part of Europe, in both Britain and Ireland, which have seen attacks on the state-run healthcare system, it's not the health department that takes the decision, it's the government as a whole, which weighs up objectively. So that's the first thing I think we really need to think about. I do think we should ban ransom payments, but we should do it unless careful study shows that it would lead to enormously perverse uh, outcomes. So let's do that sort of careful study and let's work out what package you need to put around it. Let's align national security risk and the response. All very difficult, you know, if it was easy, we'd have fixed it by now. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I thought that this helped crystallise in my mind, this whole uh, process of, of writing a joint piece with um, somebody from uh, a different perspective, was that actually we've allowed a narrative to take hold, which is really beneficial to the criminals, which is ransomware is always and everywhere an existential threat to the business. And if you don't pay, you go under. Now, that's not true. And it's not true in a lot of cases. First of all, I mean, let's look at this in the cold light of day based on a huge amount of anecdotal, if very little statistical evidence. Name me a genuine threat to life ransomware case, arguably the Irish healthcare system, and even that indirectly, enormously serious though it was, right? a direct threat to life ransomware case is very, very rare. So you can emote all you want, but actually in the cold light of day, lives are rarely at risk. So then are businesses at risk? Well, sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. I'm going to give you two examples. One is JBS. Let's take JBS, the meat to plants statement at face value. It's a fascinating document and I think people should read it. It says at the time we paid, our systems were pretty much fully operational and we were reasonably confident no data had been exfiltrated. But to prevent potential harm, potential harm to our customers, we paid $11 million dollars. Now, I passionately believe that it is a legitimate aim of public policy to make that illegal, because that makes no sense to me. There is no serious risk, and there is tremendous damage to the public interest in that payment. And so for every mostly hypothetical emotional case, I'm going to fire back the reality of JBS. On the contrary, there's a really good BBC File on 4, 37-minute radio documentary about the case of the Harris Federation in London. Now, the Harris Federation runs 50 schools in some of London's most deprived areas. They got hit by Reval, same people. They employed Israeli cyber incident response firm. It was pretty serious. They had the whole, you know, here's your sensitive records. We're going to release these. Some of the school doors wouldn't open because they were internet controlled. They were asked for 4 million US dollars, which for an educational charity, you know, is in the words of their chief executive, an insane amount. They didn't pay. They had the hit because just like Colonial Pipeline, loads of damage to the network, which, you know, even if they paid for the key, uh, wouldn't have, uh, you know, they would have to do that anyway. The total cost of their recovery was uh, south of a million dollars in US terms. So there you have it, you know, so you create this thing that everything is going to go catastrophically wrong unless you pay. And then you have lots of examples where just, again, dispassionately, the cheaper thing to do is ignore these extortionists and just rebuild the network. You know, a data dump on the dark web, maybe. It didn't happen in Ireland, it didn't happen in this case. Even if they'd done, in the Irish case, if they'd done the data dump of healthcare, yes, it would have been of use to criminals, but it wasn't going to embarrass individuals because nobody was going to print this on the open internet. It wasn't as if the Irish papers were going to suddenly, you know, just say, oh, look at the celebrities' health records. And that's not the way the system works. So we are 
promulgating the criminal's playbook by talking up ransomware is always and ever an existential threat. So I do think there's more public policy can do to at least nudge, if not bludgeon, a different set of outcomes. And that will be my starting presumption. One of the things you mentioned was, of course, Russia. And later in the conversation, I hope we can come back to the question of Russia and offensive cyber operations, because it's a big topic here at the moment. We had Ken McCollum, not on the show, but for he would only do in person, which I thought was funny. Um, so we had him come by. What? I wonder why. <laughs> but he, um, it never hurts to be too suspicious. But he was saying that he, UK in particular has seen a kind of a remarkable change in Russian behavior, a much more aggressive, much more flagrant style. How does this fit in with the ransomware effort? What is it? Is it a political problem more than anything else? Well, I will defer to Ken. He's in office and I'm not anymore. But I think that the British system in terms of Russian aggression is still very shaken from Salisbury and rightly so. I mean, the response was good, but and I'm still processing Salisbury because in my experience in office of Russian state cyber activity, it was mostly within the boundaries, not of acceptable norms, but of at least rational and analyzed and thought through aggression, you know, calculated risk. We will do the spying operations, the solar winds types. We will push the boundaries with electrical interference. Uh, we will do things like the World Anti-Doping Agency and the Olympics because we're being wronged by the International Sporting Authority, so we're going to get back at them. Even we'll have a practice with TV saint Monde with sophisticated defensive cyber operation against, against a major Western power. I remember, for example, around the time of the start of the Ukraine crisis in late 2014, we were all asking the question, what if Russia starts to do the sort of offensive cyber activity that it does against Ukraine to, say, one of the Baltic states. Um, I know it did it to Estonia, but that was when nobody really understood what was happening. A long time ago, yeah. A long time ago. And, of course, Russia didn't, and that, that made sense in, in terms of my understanding of the regime's intent. It was never going to push the boundary too far by doing a you know sort of huge, aggressive, critical infrastructure attack on a NATO and or EU uh, member um, uh, state. And then it did Salisbury. And then since then in cyber, you know, it's been it's been sort of pushing the boundaries a bit, but not nothing of sort of Salisbury scale. And when it's got it wrong, like not Petia, it's been probably accidental, you know, just lost control of its um So I still think the Russian state-sponsored system fits into that, you know, very aggressive but calculated and just stopping short of completely unacceptable behavior that would require a serious response. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on Russian statecraft. I'm not an expert on Russian organized crime, although, you know, one of the delights of Oxford is that there are plenty of people on, who are experts on the latter, you know, people like Federico Varese and so forth, he's put me in touch with the likes of Michel Glennie and so forth. And I do think that what happened this year, and I'd be very happy to be corrected on this, is that the Russian state um, has been taken by surprise at just um, how out of control its criminal gangs have become. Now, no insight, um, and I'm not current in terms of the intelligence picture, so I have no insight into what's going on behind the scenes when these ransomware gangs mysteriously disappear and take holidays or give decryptor keys away for free or any of that stuff. But at the same time, given what I've just said, you know, with the exception of Salisbury and arguably the OPCW uh, botched operation, it is hard to see 
the Russian state ordering a hit on the Irish Health Service. You know, just why on earth would they do that? Hard to see them even ordering a hit on Colonial Pipeline. And if they wanted mm. to take the pipeline, they'd have hit the pipeline, not done a ransomware attack on the corporate network. So I do think that the current crisis is more of, um, you know, the sort of internal dynamics of the Russian state and um, uh, it getting beyond what the state is comfortable with. Now, what Putin does with that, I don't know. I think the president is right to raise it very high up the agenda. He's right to put it in the way that it's not, that he's not accusing the state of direct activity in the way that he did with SolarWinds and the, uh, and, and, and the sanctions. But it is a criminal state, you know, sustained, you know, it's... Uh, very significant parts of the economy are criminal, and that that is what we're dealing with. That's an interesting issue. I mean, you know, Russia, as you say, if these are not state actors, Putin has some latitude to act and, and may act, you know, if it's in his interest to do so. But if he doesn't, what is it that, you know, you saw this in a lot of different contexts in your, your prior role. How can the international community come together? What, what can the various parties do, not just the UK and the US, but others, to try to move that ball along? Uh, is, there, is this just something that's unwinnable or is there something we can do to actually change that dynamic? Really interesting question. I would highlight two areas because I'm not particularly with Jim on the line. Um, I'm not going to go with the whole, you know, let's focus all on defences and so on because I do agree that, you know, you can't patch your way out of this problem completely. But don't worry. I'm going to get into that later. I'm going to try to fight up, set up a fight. We usually have a fight about this, so it's something to look forward to. <laughs> But for all my skepticism about offensive cyber, I mean, this this is what offensive cyber, certainly in the cyber protection domain, as opposed to the general national security capability, I mean, this is what it's for. I mean, technically, the way this stuff works, it's digital infrastructure, botnets, you know, it's it lends itself to cauterized operations with a reasonably low risk of, you know, of doing a not petty and you know, destroying all sorts of digital infrastructure accidentally. It's completely proportionate and justified. It's been done before, and a pet takedown and all of that. So do as much of that as we can. And obviously, given the capability imbalances, that's largely a US cyber command lead, although I would hope the UK and the National Cyber Force could play a part in that. So that's one thing. A second thing is, I do wonder about money, and I'm not an expert on illicit money of any kind, but mm. so I'll, I'll leave it at this. Um, when 9-11 happened, one of the many things that the international community of US-led allies did was they made it very, very hard for terrorists to move any money around in any shape or form. In fact, my poor now wife, who was coming from the US as a US citizen just after 9-11, or she emigrated just before 9-11, found it incredibly hard to open a bank account at the age of 23 uh, because of the post-9-11 financial. It was so strict. Now, I'm not suggesting that, but one of the things I'm slightly puzzled by, given the centrality of money, and whether you're into ransom payment plans or whether it's a tighter regulation of cryptocurrencies, whatever, or even just sharing intelligence, you know, post-9-11, it wasn't just rhetoric. There was the Financial Action Task Force and so forth. So what puzzles me is, Given the welcome agreement of the G7 about ransomware, you know where's the where's the beef underneath that? Where's the task force on criminal movements of money? Given the fact that so much of this is on Western, you know, infrastructure and Western payment systems and so forth. So I'd like to see a huge sort of clampdown on the movement of money in whatever way the experts agree across countries is the best way of doing that. Because I'm not one of those experts. So those are two, I think, quite practical things. Because I know you know. Uh, often, uh, you know, not least by you, Jim, you know, <laughs> it's implied that I'm uh, you know, not in favour of quite robust action, I think, in terms of offensive cyber on, on demand, on uh, strangling the flows of money. Those are two very practical steps. And then I do think, you know, you keep up the diplomatic pressure. 
I'm not an expert on uh, diplomacy, but you know, the, if the Biden administration were doing a Russia sanctions on cyber now, you know, actually harboring systemic, highly risky, potentially injurious, injurious um, cyber activity from its homeland is actually a better cause for sanctions than Solomon's was, if, if, in my view. So you'd be adding that to it. And again, you know, others may disagree, but the fact that the president had at the top of its agenda, his agenda for Geneva must be at least a minor irritant to the Russian president, if not more than that. So let's keep that pressure up. I think there's efforts to go after the financial infrastructure. They're not as coordinated as you saw after 9-11, so that's an interesting point. There's also been engagement with the Russians, and one of the issues is gauging. You know, we've seen something of a decline in Russian activity, not very much, but something of a decline. How much of that do you think we can attribute to the diplomatic pressure? Because dismantling the infrastructure is something we can do without Russian cooperation. Uh, diplomatic pressure requires at least some understanding with them. I'm going to be cautious here, Jim, because, you know, it's very hard to know. And I think the only proof is time. So is this a tactic? I mean, there is a retreat, you know, uh, but is it a tactical lying low for a while or even, frankly, enjoying the sun in the summer with with your riches, um, as some people have speculated? Or is it, I'm genuinely not trying to hint at anything here, but we all know those of us, whether you've been in government and are on the outside or whether you've never been in government, when our governments know stuff or have done stuff, most of the time it finds its way into the public domain. So if there was confidence in, say, the Five Eyes intelligence assessment that Russia had taken some decisive, even if temporary action to shut down these guys, it would probably have appeared in some reputable journal by now. So I suspect we don't really know. My hunch, and that my evidence base is this is my hunch, is that these people have been leaned on to at least not to do anything difficult for a while and no more than that. So it's not just they've packed up and gone away on a holiday. Um, I suspect that some of this may be from other parts of the criminal network. You know, I'm sure they've got links to the state because they all do, but I can't imagine that the people who have brought ransomware to the top of the G7 agenda are very popular with some of their fellow criminals and never mind with the Kremlin. So I suspect there's a combination of pressure, which is just cool it for a while. But whether that's a strategic shift in our direction, I think it's too early to tell. And certainly I haven't read anything or seen anything reported decisively that makes me believe our governments know the answer either. Just one follow-up question. You mentioned that the idea of sanctions, and that's one thing the US and the UK can do. A lot of people talk about the fact that we haven't done really that much that will influence Putin's behavior with sanctions. We haven't gone after his money flows. We haven't gone after his cronies. And and actually, Salisbury is an interesting example of that. I mean, the UK pulled some punches, in my view there, this is me speaking, uh, and didn't go after those things, partly because there's lots of investment in the UK by oligarchs, by others, I think. This is my theory, at least. So it's, it's a little pain you have to take to do this. Are we ready to take those steps? Are we ready to take meaningful steps that are going to change behavior? Or maybe those steps don't change behavior either. But it just seems like there's been a barrier that's not just, it's, it's a willfulness barrier, that we, we're not willing to take that extra step so far. I think there's something in that. The UK national security community, insofar as I knew it, would certainly not have blanched at you know, tighter enforcement of specific activity against Russian money in London, for example, if that's what you're getting at. I'm not sure it's a question of 
powers because, you know, there's things in the UK called unexplained wealth orders and stuff like that, which are pretty sweeping. But I think, and you know, in the UK with Brexit and so forth, there are specific um, sensitivities around looking too tough as a, as a business climate. Um, so there may well be something in that, uh, Chris, I, I, do, uh, I, I do agree. And certainly when the retort comes, you know, you can do all these sanctions or you can, and you can grandstand all you want, but, you know, why aren't you looking harder at money movements and, and all the rest of it? I, I do think there's something in that, yes. You talked about three reasons for the uptick in ransomware. And the middle one, if I remember correctly, was the state of preparedness on the defensive side. And we will come back to offense at the end. That's where we usually have the most fun. But if you were going to look at critical infrastructure broadly or in the UK or the US, where are the weaknesses that you think we should go after? And I'll, I'll say just as a plot it things were much better when you left than when you came in. So yeah. in looking at some of the classified briefings on solar winds, my goodness, there's certainly a lot of vulnerabilities left to exploit. What would you do? The first thing is I would redo, in the light of colonial pipelines, I would redo every assurance. I would revisit every assurance given about the business continuity of a particular asset because colonial pipelines actually scared me in that respect because... You know, you go to any critical infrastructure plant, publicly or privately owned, and what do you hear? We brought in X, and we're completely assured that you know segregation of the network. I'm not. I'm not going to say that. Well, I will say the air gapping word to deny saying it. You know, because they're not air gap. Because of course there have to be points of connectivity, but where you know you can uh, get from uh, sort of corporate network to the operational uh, network. But you're always assured that the operational network can survive on its own. And then, you know, a low to medium, fairly poxy Russian criminal attack causes a major American pipeline to be shut down by the company for whatever reason, whether it was safety or whether it was because they couldn't invoice and so forth. But that shouldn't happen, Jim. I mean, that shouldn't happen. I mean, the whole essence of critical infrastructure protection is that that shouldn't happen. So I think we need to revisit that. So how do you do that? I think it's quite interesting I think in the UK, there's one example of where this works well. And I don't want to jinx it by telling you what it is, but I have to, to make the point, which is, you know, baking it into the wider regulatory system. So the example is um, the UK financial system. So post-financial crash, and I think this is a really good example. Post-financial crash, you know, the Bank of England got this enhanced remit for financial stability. And when Mark Carney was governor of the Bank of England, he said, well, financial, it's one of the reasons the NCSC was set up. Financial stability clearly includes cyber resilience. I mean, how could it not? I don't know anything about cyber, um, so there, nor does anybody in the Bank of England. So let's get an expert government body. And oh, there isn't one. So that's one of the reasons why he pressurized ministers to set up the NCSC. Um, but what does that mean? The Bank of England conducts effectively stress tests of banks. Now, stress tests are normally about, you know, can you withstand massive I don't know, losses, currency devaluations, you know, capital flight, whatever the hell it is. Um, but it also means, you know, how can you withstand a major site, a major technological disruption? It could be accidental failure of the network. Uh, it could be uh, a cyber attack and so on. And I think that is a superb philosophy. Now, critical infrastructure tends to be highly regulated uh, industries. Um, and they're, you know, when they get into hard infrastructure, so let's move from banking and finance to energy. Now we never managed in my time to get the to get the same model in energy, but you know, energy is regulated 
within an inch of its life on safety, as it should be. You know, in effect, that comes out in the price that consumers pay, which is also regulated. Why aren't we doing that? And in effect, stress testing, and that's where Colonial Pipeline, where that sort of thing could have been caught. So if there's one thing I could do in critical infrastructure, it would be given that in both our countries and in most developed countries these days, um, it's essentially you know, the stuff we really care about is in private hands, is to sort of bake that stress testing and resilience in a very skeptical way, post-colonial pipelines into the system. Now, it's pretty expensive, but the whole point is, I mean, so telecoms is the other one. So the UK has now adopted that approach for telecoms. Interestingly, the whole... You know, the whole furore over Huawei and 5G was actually the reason. The reason it crystallised politically in that way was that it was actually, a, you know, in terms of the, the grand design, it was a secondary issue about, in effect, giving the regulator Bank of England style powers over the telecoms industry. And because during the first two decades of the 21st century, uh, telecoms throughout Europe, because of course the UK was a member of the European Union for all but the last year of that period. Telecoms were regulated at the EU level essentially on two things. One was low consumer price and the other was no roaming charges. And security wasn't baked into the model. So funnily enough, you know, in a highly competitive market, nobody paid for it. So now the, the new regulatory regime, the Telecom Security Bill in the UK is saying, right, you have to make these security standards. Yeah, they're going to be, they're going to be reflected in consumer prices, but how else are we going to secure these networks? They're going to be stress tested. There's going to be regulatory enforcement fines for major vulnerabilities for, uh, you know, for major um, uh, compromises and so on. So that's the sort of thing I'd like to see. Actually, that's interesting because even here, the confirmation hearings of Chris Inglis and Jen Easterly, they both talked about maybe the time has come for legislation for standards here. And, and we'll see. Uh, but I think many of us who have been involved in this a long time think the time probably has come a long time ago. So uh, it'll be interesting. And the one thing I would say that there was, we never wanted a cyber regulator. We wanted it to fit into the business model of the tech concerned. Now the NCSC, I mean, it was, you know, interestingly, it's a model that I think everyone loves from the outside, at least maybe, maybe not in the inside, but the outside, Uh, a lot of other countries are trying to emulate it. They like it. I mean, it's very hard for us to do in the U S because we have so many different competing authorities, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of what you saw and really growing that organization, what, what can other countries, particularly the U.S., learn from, from that? What, what should we be thinking about doing differently than we're doing now uh, to kind of get that synergy that you guys had? Well, it's nice of you to say so. And, you know, it's by, no means, um, uh, it's by no means perfect. And the other thing is, you know, even though the U.K. is the fifth or sixth, depending on various fluctuations, largest economy in the world, you know, it's by the US and the US has you know, several world-class centers of expertise in cyber, you know, the NSA, parts of the CIA, DHS, the FBI, and you know, a country like the UK can only really afford one. So um, um, I think uh, also, you know, institutional change has a, um, uh, has a cost and the way the US system works, as you both know better than me, changing the machinery of government is quite costly and disruptive. In the UK, it may be a bit disruptive. It's not costly at all, really, because I mean, you know, you don't can be sort of changed by prime ministerial fiat in most cases, rather than you know congressional legislation. So, you know, I do think you have to weigh up that transitional cost. But I think there are there are probably two sort of attitudinal and capability things that I'm reasonably proud of. One was just fixing stuff. So if you take things like 
the DMARC protocol for brand spoofing or automatic blocking from government networks. There was no money in either of those things, which is why the market hadn't promoted them. Rather than just calling for public-private partnerships, which tended to be lead to committees and conferences rather than action, it was that let's actually look at market failure. You know, I put it this way, there is no business for the government in some parts of commercial threat intelligence. I'll come to that in a minute, because, you know, there's a huge industry out there, dwarfs the size of the NTSA, it's really good. So just let it go. But there was, but in terms of things like brand protection, because nobody loses money by having their brand spoofed, um, but it's a social harm, that's what government should step in. So that sort of activist approach was quite good. But the second thing was, in effect, just demystifying and explaining it in hopefully a usable way to a whole bunch of people. I mean, there was a question, you know, one of my favorite movies is the American classic Office Space, if you remember it, from about 20 years ago, where, you know, and I know it was a past Don't get Chris started on movies, please. But it was a, you know, a send-up of a North Texas IT firm, and they had this big banner crossing, yes, but is it good for the company? And whilst, you know, I join in the sort of uh, general mockery of such things, there was an implicit, I mean, this is Britain, so of course we didn't have any such banner up on the wall, but there was an implicit, you know, yes, is, but is this good for UK cybersecurity? I think one of the things that was proud of attitudinally was, you know, if you work for a secret organisation, there's a tendency to this practice as an incentive to kind of do what you want and kind of do what you find interesting. Well, the NCAC was reversing that presumption. It was, yes, but is this useful to somebody? You know, uh, is this useful to the charity sector? Is it useful to the education sector? Is it useful, is it useful to big business, critical infrastructure? Is it useful to a government service? I mean, it may be a very interesting find, um, but what does, this, what does it do? You know, can we use it? And so, you know, there's this lovely moment, in fact, I persuaded uh, somebody to write an internal blog about it, which for me it classified, but I can draw on the generalities of it. It was one of the sort of longest serving sort of threat ops analysts. Uh, and it was after one of the, I think it was the OPCW after Salisbury declassification to the US and so on in 2018. We put out all this uh, indicators of compromise information about um, the Russian threat and um, business, you know, the, the, the take up figures in terms of downloads and so on, you know, business sort of gobbled it up. And this guy said, um, you know, 10 years ago, arguably five years ago, this stuff would have been top secret. And now we're just publishing it and people are using it. Isn't this fantastic? And that was great. So those are the sort of the two things. I think, you know, um, we're not living in a, is something secret or is something classified or not anymore? Not in cybersecurity. It's very gray um, and it's all a question of risk um, uh, judgment. Make it useful um, to people and look at where the government can genuinely add value. Those are the two things I thought we're really pleased about. That would probably be DHS here in the US, don't you think? I mean, to give advice. I think one of the changes that Chris did, Chris Krebs, yeah. is he, he really resurrected, he got the new legislative authority under CISA. And so CISA, is, if you compare DHS, our last regulatory episode was 2012, when the Congress ultimately decided not to give DHS the authority. And that might have been the right decision back then. But now that CISA is so much stronger, what authorities would you prescribe for them based on your experience in the UK? So this is a hard question for me to answer because it goes to the heart of the difference between the two systems. I mean, basically, you know, UK, you don't really need authorities to do something as long as it's not illegal or right to what Parliament has voted you money to do, which is actually really useful, you know. And actually, I think you see that cultural difference when a US colleague introduces him or herself and first thing 
he or she does is quote the authorities are operating under and you sort of go okay then you know <laughs> um, I work for the National Cybersecurity Center that's all you need to say but I think it's not so much an authority because as far as I can tell from the election work you know working with the state and local uh, governments was 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 doable releasing information to business is doable you know I was talking to various US colleagues about this over the course of the year if you can find a way and I know this is monstrously complicated in the US system of sort of giving legal protection for people in both directions to cooperate with each other, you know, against accusations of favoritism, because, you know, we were treating everybody fairly, but some of them were capable and interested and some of them weren't. So those who were capable and interested got more out of us than those who didn't. But thankfully, those who didn't, didn't sue us. Uh, you know, so there's stuff, you know, there is stuff, there is stuff like that. You know, so I think it's more about the sort of, given how litigious the US can be, it's more about affording, trying to find ways of affording protection to do some of these slightly riskier and more open things. Put it this way, here's the way I would summarize it. After a couple of months at the NCSC, I remember I abandoned a really important conversation. And it was actually, it was whilst it was focused on critical infrastructure, it was a microcosm of, of a much bigger problem. What will the NCSE step in to do? In other words, when will it take mm. risk off the private sector? And we abandoned the conversation because it was too hard. Mm. And we decided mm. that we'd rather spend all our time philosophizing about the precise allocation of risk between the public and private sectors in the age of cybersecurity. We'd go and do some cybersecurity and improvise it. And we decided on the latter. And I've never regretted that decision. Our CISA, and I genuinely don't know, and I think Jen Easterday is a wonderful successor and a really talented individual, but our CISA allowed that luxury of just doing, and you know, as the US government as a whole, just allowed a period where it can just not really worry too much about whether the government should really be doing this, you know, whether you're transferring too much risk or you know, delegating too much risk and just get on with doing stuff in a slightly ambiguous way. That would be the thing that, you know, because the British system allowed us to do that. It wasn't always easy, but um, I think that was very beneficial. So we've talked about UK-US. How about UK-E after Brexit? What's going on there? If your classic two things can be true at once. In big picture terms, let's not sugarcoat this. Relationships between the United Kingdom government, the European Union as a whole, and many individual EU governments are horrible. You know, in big picture terms, you know, they're they're worst in my lifetime. I'm 46. On the other hand, cybersecurity and more generally national security cooperation between the UK, the EU as a whole, and the constituent member states is pretty good, not significantly deleteriously affected over the last year, and has maintained the historical peak that it has reached in the last five, ten years. Additionally, I mean, one of the great paradoxes of the Brexit debate in this area was that, you know, the essence of the pro-Brexit campaign and one of the essences of the pro-Brexit campaign was that you know, the EU was such a sort of behemoth and controlling organisation that it affected all aspects of national life, including and government life, including national security. I started at the NCSC in pre-referendum times on the assumption of the UK to stay and I did about half of my time in the period of between the referendum and formal exit and the last bit of it formally outside of, uh, of the EU. Nothing I did or wanted to do was affected positively or negatively by EU membership, you know, or, or mm -hmm. the end of it. 
you know, it just the EU had no real locus in cybersecurity. Now, clearly things like data adequacy and so on. I'm not pretending it's got nothing to do with technology and the digital economy and if some of the catastrophic situations, which are still up in play, like data adequacy, you know, come to pass, there'll be all sorts of consequences. I only ever went to Brussels for NATO business. I never had any real cause to go to Brussels for cybersecurity business, although maybe paid courtesy calls to CERTEU, who we sort of helped. We were a net exporter of capabilities, if you like, mm-hmm. um, in my time. And then if I take, you know, member state relationships and France being the other sort of major European security power. I mean, Guillaume Poupard and I started on pretty much the same day in February 2014. And we made an effort together. And I think UK, France, and uh, cybersecurity cooperation is way, way better than it was when we both started. I can't lie and say that, you know, Brexit didn't change the undertone, the atmosphere of the conversations. We didn't, uh, I can't pretend we didn't talk about it and so forth. But actually, if you look at, you know, we both decided we're going to make an effort to get the two most capable cybersecurity powers in Europe to work more effectively together. And if you look at what we achieved, and there were loads of things I wish we'd been able to do more of, but it was a pretty seamless, slightly upward trajectory for the six and a half years that was working uninterrupted because there was not, I didn't have to pull out of anything apart from the odd working group here and there. I didn't have to pull out of anything because of Brexit. And, you know, because the EU didn't really have that much confidence. So the tone is horrible. And particularly security professionals try to rise above this. I know that sounds very sort of a grand, self-aggrandizing. I don't mean it to. But you know, we have these relationships and we continue to make them work. So both things are true. The general state of political and diplomatic relations are terrible. But national security and certainly the bit I know about cybersecurity cooperation is very, very good. We'd ask you about Germany, but we put you on the spot. I would say the same about Germany, but it's just, I suppose, France is the other P5 security part. But I mean, Arne Schoenbaum and I... Um, you know, I started about a year and a half after I did. That's a close relationship. I mean, the BSI, it's a bit more like ANSI than the NCSC is. German relationship was pretty good as well. It was probably even more prominent in the background um, and the atmospherics mm. and so forth. But actually, in terms of our teams, you know, what I find about cybersecurity, which I didn't know about because, you know, uh, I didn't have the experience going into it, that certainly in Europe, it's voluntarily multilateral and driven by mm. capabilities and willingness to cooperate. Norway was always a significant operational player for a country of its size, and it's a non-EU mm. uh, state, and, uh, but it's, it's good at this stuff. It worries about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So. We could talk a lot more about the EU, but we don't have much time, so we'll, we'll go into our last topic. I think this is a unique opportunity because we have a spectrum of views here, and I'll, I'll kind of caricature them, and you can fight against them, certainly. Um, on the one hand, I think Jim would say deterrence is crap and we have to unleash cyber command uh, to go after the bastards, you know, uh, without uh, and let them do it. I, you can you can fight against this characterization in a moment. I would say no, I was just going to say I love ideas from the 20th century. I mean, who could object? <laughs> I, I would say wait, 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 it's I would been say, over a while, though, hasn't it? All right. You can't comment now. You got your chance in a moment. So the second, <laughs> you know, I'd say that we haven't actually given the idea of you know, trying to shape uh, other countries' views, that part of deterrence. I don't think we've actually done it, given an old college try. What we've done, including sanctions and other stuff, has been ineffective because we haven't targeted the right things. And I think that Cyber Command has a role, but I also worry about building alliances with other countries and acting unilaterally. And then, you know, for you, Karen, I think you've been very strong in saying, why aren't we talking about defense? Why aren't we doing that? Let's not impose costs. Let's do better on defense. 
Now I know there's nuances between all those positions. So, so I'm, I, like I said, I'm caricaturing them, but, but first, Karen, since you're the guest, I'm going to turn to you and sort of get your view of this debate and where we should go. Uh, and you can certainly nuance the position I sketched out for you, <laughs> which you already did a little bit with uh, ransomware, which I think we all agree that that kind of offensive action to go after and target those groups might be something we, we consider. Okay. Um, so firstly, I'm not a cyber unilateral. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a member of the campaign for unilateral cyber disarmament. <laughs> I do think offensive cyber has its place in the suite of national security capabilities. I think it can sometimes be misunderstood because it's got the word cyber in it, um, you know, that it's somehow about contesting the cyber domain um, as if there's an Olympic gold to be won or, you know, who's the best, like a boxing match, you know, who's got the best combination of cyber offense and cyber defense to win out. So when you talk about the UK and it discloses its operations, the one they always trot out is against ISIL and the Mosul offensive, which is the classic. I mean, I'm fully in favor of that, but... They, that was nothing to do with the UK's domestic cybersecurity. It was everything to do with the UK's domestic, the UK's national security and that mm. of allies. It's about disrupting terrorist plots, disrupting radicalization, and assisting you know those who were fighting uh, ISIL ahead of the, the Mosul offensive. It's got its place against ransomware. It's got its place against organised crime, sexual abuse online. Absolutely. So you know the capabilities should should exist. Speaking specifically about the UK debate, um, I think. Um, and I know Jim probably does. I believe Jim probably doesn't share this view. I do think there's a need for informed consent. I think we learned that from Snowden. Um, you know, where, uh, uh, and we just and we just don't talk about it in the UK. It's magical powers um, uh, 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 stuff. I think that's dangerous. I think, for example, you know, and I said this in public at King's College in November. As far as I know, we operate on the basis of an assumption of 100% of security of capabilities 100% of the time. Well, we know from the shadow brokers and stuff like that, it's just not true. It's not, that doesn't mean we should disarm, but it means we should ask tough questions. Uh, some of that will have to be in private, but not all of it, um, because again, we learned from Snowden that whilst you don't disclose who you're spying on, once the Snowden scandal had forced us to actually justify to parliamentarians and judicial oversight what we needed to do and why and we could do that in general terms you know the world didn't fall in and actually we got better and more appropriate legal authorities uh, uh, for it but in the UK certainly we're hiding from that public debate about the risks of this the risks of us doing and not Petia. Moreover um, and I wrote a piece in this for the British Daily Telegraph the other day I mean it allows politicians to hide and this is where my pushback against the imposing cost language comes up I'm not against imposing costs I'm against people saying they're imposing costs when they're not. <laughs> and, you know, and time and again, and again, I'm sticking to Britain on this. Um, so we had a minister, a foreign office minister, Dominic Rabb's deputy, come to the House of Commons after the Microsoft half name attribution the other week. And people were saying, pull out of the Winter Olympics in China. Um, you know, pick out more and more Chinese investment uh, because you're not responding toughly enough. And he was saying, Oh, uh, we are responding, but I'm afraid, you know, you couldn't possibly expect me to tell you how. Well, hang on. Right. OK, let's look at this. What are we actually doing? Uh, are we spying on China? Well, I assume so. I mean, there's no secret in, 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 uh, in, in that. Are we trying to disrupt the digital infrastructure of some of China's um, um, intelligence services? Well, I mean, I can't comment, but 
I assume operationally they're as you know trying to be as secure as the NSA or GCHP or whatever. So it's probably quite hard, and uh, you know it's the ongoing sort of tip for that. Going beyond that, are we going to do some propaganda operation against Chinese media? Well, you can if you want, but obviously what the point is, are we going to attack critical infrastructure to destabilize and put at risk Chinese civilians? Well, in response to a hack of Microsoft servers, I'm not sure that's justified or wise. I'm tired of political leadership. You know, there, there was somebody, not me, who was quoted in an economist piece saying politicians love offensive cyber because it's like special forces. You can imply that it's doing all sorts of magical things um, uh, and you never have to justify it. Um, so, you know, I think I'm deeply skeptical, both in terms of, you know, the informed consent and the risk management, but also the efficacy of what it can do for this specific threat. And then I do worry about the displacement aspect of this and the prioritization choice. I mean, you know, governments only have so much money. So if they say, right, we're going to, you know, and there's a certain element of which, well, you know, we did the offensive cyber thing last time, or sorry, we did defensive cyber last time. So let's, you know, build up this uh, stuff instead. And I genuinely also think that, and again, you know, maybe coming in after, just after Snowden, sort of schooling this, and this is, I know, a controversial opinion, but to some extent, it's not binary, but to some extent, there is a choice to be made about whether you're prioritizing internet safety over internet insecurity. I had too many conversations, particularly in the early days of my time with people saying, are you sure you want to be doing all this stuff to improve general cybersecurity? Because, you know, we do get a lot of advantage out of, uh, out of it. That is a real attitude. It's easy to caricature it. And my passionate conviction, which is just a conviction, so it's completely contestable, is that free, open, rule of law, highly advanced, economically digitized societies have more to gain from a generally more secure environment than they have to lose by exploiting its weaknesses and Taking all that together, particularly with our, the British government's unwillingness to debate this, um, I worry that we could end up making the wrong choice and the wrong bet. I think both of us have been pushing for greater transparency since the Bush administration. And so one thing that bothers me is that there's a quote in Dr. Strangelove about, you know, it doesn't do any good to keep this stuff secret. We used it in 2008. We can use it today. So... I couldn't agree more you need a public debate on this, but you do need to think about proportionality. And I'm going to want to read a quote here because I think we haven't talked about China. Xi Jinping just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the party. And he said that China is good at destroying the old world and those who oppose it will find their head broken and blood flowing against the Great Wall of Steel, right? That's not easy to deter. So I think that the issue here is not offense, defense, what should we do? The issue is how do you establish proportionality and embed it in a larger foreign policy strategy? So what do you think about proportionality or connection to a larger strategy? What do you think about China? I mean, that quote is every bit as chilling as it, as it sounds. I think that the US-led West needs to do everything it can to maintain leadership and advantage in two areas. One is general military capabilities as some form of deterrent, much as that word is loosely bandied uh, around, and that you know elite, carefully guarded cyber capabilities and the cyber dimension of supporting those capabilities and the cyber security of those capabilities is a huge part of it. It's a long time since anybody serious posited offensive cyber as a replacement, say, for the nuclear deterrent. It used to happen, it doesn't anymore, thankfully. So I think 
I would be supportive of ambitious but carefully managed because it can go horribly wrong, cyber aspects of that military capability lead. I think then the second area, which is a much bigger challenge, is technological leadership. As Towards the end of my time, particularly as I thought more and more about the sort of Huawei um, uh, implications of that very sort of formative debate in the UK uh, thing, you know, I began to think of, you know, almost sort of with uh, fondness or with wistful, if not fond nostalgia for the days of, you know, just good old Chinese hacking. <laughs> because you know, at least conceptually that was strip, you know, that was it may have been operationally hard, but conceptually it was quite easy to deal with. You were the National Cybersecurity Center, there were a bunch of hackers in China, mostly with state links, you know, and you tried to you tried to make their lives as difficult as possible and their um, endeavors as fruitless as possible. But then what you have now is the Chinese attempt, the way that Russia can never do to dominate technology and to have better uh, technology. And that, you know, it's, it's a bit like them, but on a far more strategically important, the sort of cooperation that I talked about, financial sanctions for ransomware. That requires the West to get its act together on sustaining a technological lead over China, which is badly at risk of losing. Um, I do worry, I subscribe to the Dan Wang's uh, argument that some of the Trump administration sanctions actually might have triggered innovation in China by throttling, by blocking access to anything in, in, in the US. I worry that, and I said this to the Trump administration at the time, you, know, you can criticize the NCSC's initial recommendations and the British government's initial decision all, all you want. But I do think that Huawei and bits of 5G in the UK was a pretty, pretty strange sort of major battle on the future of, of China and the West when you've got, you know, when you've got the investment in microchips, when you've got the you know, acquisition of IP all over the world and so forth, which which is the stuff that will actually fuel China's dominance and so forth. So um, I think we need to have a serious strategic conversation in the West about the two most important institutions, if they can find a way of collaborating, are the US and the EU on this, to just given the size of the two of them. Mm. Uh, I think to find a way of shoring up and then enhancing Western tech. So military leadership, technological leadership are the two things that I think we really need to be able to do. Again, and I'm quoting Dan Wine here, you know, the US-led West's response to challenge, whether it's Soviet challenge or even Japanese economic challenge, is to outcompete and out-innovate and just be better and eventually, you know, assume that your economic supremacy and social robustness as a free rule of law set of societies with contented citizens will, will win. What are we doing? Um, and that you're sufficiently well militarily defended uh, to enforce that if, if the need arises. Those are the areas that I would, um, those are the areas I would focus on. First of all, I note that as much as we all uh, like sparring over the term offensive and, and the various terms, deterrence, we pretty much agree on most of the major concepts. I mean, I think that we do want more transparency. We do think this has a role, but it has to be integrated into a larger strategy. But I guess you know, what you're saying right now is we really have to integrate cyber more generally into our strategic strategy with respect to these other countries. It can't be this outlier. We have to think about the long-term economic challenges and also competition. So, so I guess, you know, Karen, what what would you recommend? You know, now you know you've seen a lot of the different threats out there. You've seen the opportunities. You know, if you had one or two things you'd recommend in terms of where we should go from here, like how we can actually improve the situation, what would they be? A coordinated approach to strategic technological capabilities in the West. You know, why were we in the Huawei situation? It's because we didn't have that many reliable Western providers to choose from. That's the one most important 
thing that I would that I would pick out absolutely every time. Can we get uh, there? National Security Corporation, military corporation, is actually easier than this because it involves it doesn't really involve economic choices apart from public spending. One of the mismatches in bureaucracies at the minute, and you see this time and again, is that the realization that we need to do something about this tends to be done in national security communities, you know, five eyes conferences, defense chiefs conferences and so forth. And then they report this to politicians. Politicians say, yeah, can you go and work with our allies? But actually all the levers are in economics ministries and so forth. So that's why it's a hard problem. And that's why we need to think very differently. You know, particularly we've, we're getting on for half a century now of post-industrial strategy in the US and the UK since the Reagan-Thatcher uh, years. And obviously there'll be a lot of reticence about revoking those uh, changes for sort of key industries. But I do think we need to think a little bit more, um, a little bit more about it. My reticence about offensive cyber is if you, if you think about that blood curdling speech um, that Jim quoted, you know, what can we do specifically in the offensive covert space? What can we meaningfully do that will thwart that in isolation? Nothing really. I mean, you know, indeed in some respects, you know, unleashing that against parts of the Chinese population might only sort of radicalize and bolster um, a very nationalist narrative that the Xi administration is extremely good at using and cultivating. I, I think it needs to be a supportive capability of, of, of other things. But I think you know, if you take someone like Alex Younger, so Alex Younger, the recently retired head of MI6, you know, he's got a good line, which I think is worth thinking about. You know, we've gone from an era where size of population and military prowess have determined um, uh, supremacy to, frankly, being able to innovate and be able to have the best uh, technology. When we started pushing back against China under Trump, and it was the right strategic call and probably you know did shake the rest of the world in the way that only the Trump administration could into, into getting to this place. But then policy response was to try to kneecap China, not to try and grow ourselves. And you can only do that for so long because the, the advantage China has um, that we have to overcome is a sort of single integrated planning for technology and national security with a 1.5 billion increasingly technically sophisticated domestic market. Um, the advantage we have is that we have an innovation uh, lead. We have a much better incentivized private sector and we've generally got more contented citizens. Although again, we need to look at the divisions in our own societies and so forth. So this is this is big, big stuff. And this is why I push back. I'm not, I'm not talking about Jim's views here, but, but I'm pushing back at some of the sort of general narrative that you can somehow computerize your way out of these really hard choices because you can't. So Kieran, we've kept you on longer than we promised. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, this is the technological leadership is a bigger debate than cybersecurity in the US now. It's worth noting with the Innovation and Competition Act and Senators actually show up and care when you testify on this. So I, I think everyone would agree with you that that's becoming the focal point. But any, any final remarks before we let you go? Thanks for having me. I think the future of the policy response is as much economic as it is security. I think the pandemic has shown us that as we become ever more reliant on the technology to keep us professionally functioning and personally sane, begin to think cybersecurity is almost like a public good now. It's a bit like environmental protection. You know, it's always made sense for you individually and the organization for which you work to keep yourself as safe as you can. But actually I'm beginning to think that it's now a public good. Think about cyberspace, not just as a sort of military domain of operations, but think about it as an environment of human activity and let's try and keep it clean.
That's a good note to end on. Thank you. Oh, totally. Thanks a lot. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.